welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Kathy Phelps. Kathy is a partner in the Los Angeles office of the law firm Diamond McCarthy and has 24 years of experience as a lawyer in bankruptcy law and fraud litigation. She is a frequent speaker on commercial fraud issues in bankruptcy and is an accomplished author on the topic. She also co-chairs ABI's Commercial Fraud Committee. Kathy earned her BA in International Relations from Pomona College and her JD from UCLA. Kathy is the editor and co-author of ABI's newest publication, Fraud and Forensics, Piercing Through the Deception in a Commercial Fraud Case, which we're going to discuss today during this podcast. So welcome, Kathy, and thanks for joining us today to discuss your new book. Thanks for having me. So Kathy, can you tell us why you wrote this book? Well, about, I don't know, two years ago, I think, I was approached by the Commercial Fraud Committee of the ABI to spearhead this project, and it was um, something that they had been brewing, I think, for a while before they approached me. The, the committee had conceived of the concept of putting together a book that was relating to forensic accountants and, and their role in a commercial fraud case. So they called me up and they asked if I would take the lead on turning this concept into reality. And I really, really loved the idea. I thought it would be a great resource for professionals that are involved in the commercial fraud case. So I had a lot of fun thinking about what topics should be covered and then who we could ask to write chapters on their areas of expertise. So I took the idea and I ran with it. I received a very enthusiastic response from every author that I asked to contribute. And we ended up with, I think, 25 of us contributing as authors to the book. Yeah, I think that's fabulous that you had so many different perspectives, and yet the book really kind of comes together as one voice. And so I, I really think that that's, that's great that all your authors were able to contribute uh, a, a separate chapter to the book. Yeah, we had, we had fun putting it together, although it was a bit of work, but it was a good project. <laughs> so who is the intended audience for the Fraud and Forensics book? Well, I mean, really, forensic accountants, obviously, lawyers who work with them, judges, certified fraud examiners. I mean, really, anyone who's working in or around a commercial fraud case who wants to know the advantages of having a forensic accountant involved and the types of issues that they might deal with. I mean, a forensic accountant can be retained by really almost anyone who has some sort of a legal or equitable interest in a particular financial transaction, and that could include attorneys, bankruptcy trustees, um, equity receivers, insurers, financial institutions, government entities, could be private equity firms, um, corporations or their corporate counsel, creditors, defendants. So, I mean, there really is a whole cast of characters who might be interested in the book. And you really, I, I mean, I think you really did a great job of kind of um, making sure that your intended audience would be able to um, grasp the concepts in the book, and you did a, you know, it's it's a, it's a, a a complete work of all the information you would need as a forensic accountant who might be new to this type of, of you know, commercial fraud case. Yeah, the concept, um, you know, I mean, obviously, if we needed to put in one place everything a forensic accountant needed to know, <laughs> it wouldn't fit in one book. Right. Um, so the concept was really to, to spot the issues and to give enough of a lead into the issues that if one really wanted to dive in depth into a particular topic, they would know where to go, and, and it's kind of an issue-spotting type of a book. Um, but we really did try to cover the gamut of the, the, the scope of things that a forensic accountant would encounter in a commercial fraud case. So tell us some of the various roles that forensic accountants would play in a commercial fraud case. First and foremost, generally speaking, it's it's reconstructing what happened. What was the fraud? What went wrong? Where did things go? It's finding the hidden assets and, and tracing the funds and the property and, and ultimately probably providing some sort of lit- litigation support. Um, the types of categories that 
that things are the categories of things that forensic accountants do are things like number one fraud detection right they're going to assist in detecting sometimes right out of the box what the financial fraud was or if there is one and then in tracing the misappropriated or the fraudulently transferred um, assets they're also often involved in computer forensics um, there's so much electronically stored data out there that they will assist in identifying it, locating it, recovering it, and then ultimately preserving it. And then, of course, they provide litigation support. Um, forensic accountants really assist in identifying and compiling the evidence of fraud that the lawyer would ultimately need in a litigation case. And uh, they'll help with the strategy, and they'll help um, prepare the case to go to trial. And then at trial, they very often serve as expert witnesses. They'll prepare a report, an expert report on whatever their investigation and findings were, and then ultimately testify about that and in support of their client's case at trial. So when should a forensic accountant be pulled into the case? If I'm a lawyer or, you know, another professional, when should I look at pulling a forensic accountant into a, into a case? Well, often you walk into a case and there's an overwhelming amount of, of documents and financial da- data that is just massively disorganized. And so you would need help in organizing that. On the flip side of that, sometimes you walk into a case and there's absolutely no financial data and some investigation is required. So on either one of those scenarios, you probably would want the assistance of a forensic accountant. The forensic accountant is going to come in. They're going to um, help uh, make some sense out of what happened. They'll interview employees. Um, they'll interview witnesses. They'll access whatever electronically stored information there might be. Um, they may identify third-party sources where and help direct the lawyers to go gather up some additional information. And once you've kind of done all of that data gathering and organization, then a forensic accountant would help to trace what happened, tra- trace where the funds went, where the property went, and maybe supervise um, the compilation of a, a, a massive database with all of the various information. And then again, ultimately, if litigation is required, then a forensic accountant you would want pulled into the case to explain what the process was that they went through to reconstruct the records and then to provide expert testimony as needed in a particular case. And you, you talked about the investigation, and I know the, and you also talked about kind of the electronically stored information, and the book covers um, the specific challenges with electronically stored um, information. What are some of those obstacles um, that a forensic accountant might face with ESI um, as opposed to, you know, hard copies of actual physical files? Well, that could be a whole book in and of itself, I suppose. Um, electronically stored information increases just exponentially every day, and it also changes constantly every day at every moment. Um, and ESI can change on its own. You just open an email and it, it changes the you know metadata behind it, or it can be automatically rewritten, or emails can be automatically deleted. More sinisterly, you know, ESI can be deleted or modified to to try to cover up, you know, fraudulent tracks. So gathering up and preserving and maintaining the status quo of ESI is a real challenge. Um, And the forensic accountant is often the one that's charged with doing that. They have to locate it. They have to, you know, recover it. They have to preserve it. They have to make sure that they're preserving it in an appropriate fashion so that it can be ultimately used at trial as evidence down the road. You know, one of the, one of the bigger challenges uh, for forensic accountants is, is locating it. I mean, it can be just about anywhere. Um, you know, ESI can be in the hands of the perpetrator. 
It could be in the hands of a third party. It could be on thumb drives, external hard drives, laptops, mobile devices. It could be on voicemail messages, just on the Internet, stored on the cloud somewhere. And so locating it is a huge challenge. And after that, um, you then have to ensure that relevant data hasn't been altered, and so they have to look at that and the history. Um, they would want to look to make sure that whatever ESI they actually have collected depicts information that's, that's from the original source and hasn't been altered. Um, they also want to make sure that they've done everything to meet the legal standards for the use of the ESI in legal proceedings. So there's a whole host of issues there, and uh, a good forensic accountant is often uh, instrumental in, in doing it right. So do, do forensic accountants um, tend to bring in third-party vendors to help them with the ESI uh, information? Because I can't imagine, well, and maybe they are. Maybe they aren't these days trained in that sort of, you know, the ability to, to track down metadata and all of those things. But, I mean, is that some, sometimes when they reach some, out to Some other... do and some don't. And yeah. some shops will have a person in-house that will be the one that's imaging the computers and it's looking at that. Some of them will outsource a particular piece of it. So it kind of depends on whether you're hiring a big firm that's got all that capacity or a smaller shop that needs to farm it out. So that's a one-on-one -on -one question you'd have to ask your forensic accountant. But certainly forensic accountants have to know about ESI and, and that it's an issue and that they, have, they will need to be addressing it in most cases. Well, these days, it seems to me that the bulk of the information that you get um, is from electronically stored information. Yeah. I mean, you can subpoena banks and you can get bank records, um, but beyond that, almost everything these days is, is stored electronically somewhere. Right. Speaking of electronic, how does social media play a role in a forensic accountant's investigation? I mean, almost everyone is using some form of, of social media these days, and of course, there's just a massive amount of information out there on the World Wide Web. It can be a very, very effective investigative tool. Um, a good forensic accountant is going to know where to look for and access that information. And, and, of course, this topic, along with all of the other topics that we've talked about, each have a dedicated chapter in the book. Um, and the chapter um, in, the, in the Fraud and Forensics book on social media is really useful because it really um, offers up a lot of suggested um, websites and search that a forensic accountant could do to glean information about whoever the subject of their investigation is. And what you find is that the information that's available on um, personal networking sites in the social media realm, like on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Pinterest, is going to be different than something that you might find on a professional uh, social media outlet like LinkedIn. And so um, accessing that data, knowing the, the tools and the tricks um, to, to be able to sort of guess what somebody's handle is and to be able to find them in these different outlets um, is, is a very, very useful search tool. And what if I'm a lawyer reading this book, I mean, what am I going to find out about my role um, in the forensic investigation? Do I play a role um, or do I kind of just hand it over to the um, uh, forensic accountant and say, hey, take this and run with it? <laughs> well, uh, a positive and coordinated team effort between a lawyer and a forensic accountant is going to go much farther than um, those two professionals working in silos. Um, they, they definitely work hand-in-hand, hand, really at every phase of the case. Um, you know, pre-litigation, when you're still in the investigative phase, the lawyer is going to work with the forensic accountant to review records, to, to help either help prepare a database or at least tell that forensic accountant the most useful way that they can prepare a database that's going to be useful to the lawyer, go over any relevant rules or regulations or laws that might somehow impact the analysis. 
Um, and so a lawyer is really going to use a forensic accountant in the information gathering process. It's also often really important to have a lawyer involved when the forensic accountant is out interviewing witnesses, because if you pull a lawyer into the mix, you might get some extra privileges and protections of those communications that you might not otherwise want disclosed. So you want some coordination there, too. And a lawyer is often going to be the one to set the parameters of what, and the scope of whatever investigation the accountant's going to do, and often set a budget, which, you know, as we know, is an important thing to do. Um, Lawyers can have a lot of other roles in working in tandem with a forensic accountant. They can figure out how best to use or whether to use a forensic accountant in the context of a mediation, for example. Um, they're really going to work with the accountant in evidence preservation. It's the lawyer usually that would send a preservation letter to the other side saying, don't destroy any of your ESI. They're going to establish the litigation holds requiring people to just freeze everything. Uh, they're going to work with the forensic accountant to identify people who might have likely relevant information that needs to be preserved. And then when you get into litigation, um, the lawyer is going to work with the forensic accountant to develop questions for depositions or interrogatories and that type of a thing, again, to discover better information. And then ultimately, if you're going to use a accountant in trial, you want to you want to vet that accountant as an expert witness. You want to check their qualifications, their theories, their methodologies, and then lawyers uh, will often work with the expert to develop testimony for trial. And they're going to know the lawyer is going to know what forum you're in. Are you in state court, federal court? Are you in an arbitration? Are you going to be before a judge or a jury? And and help focus the forensic accountant on on the best way to to deliver testimony. So there's plenty of, of opportunity for a lawyer to work very closely with a forensic accountant. Well, I, I know, I've noticed that in the, lately in the news there's been um, some cases that involve health care uh, fraud, um, and your book touches on that. Um, be, you mentioned that health care is an industry that's susceptible to fraud generally. Can you provide a few examples from the book of some fraudulent health care schemes? Well, sure. Um, yeah, the, it's, a, it's a good chapter in that it gives a good overview those types of issues. I mean, in healthcare, fraud could really crop up at any point, and there are so many players. You know, there's the, the patient and the provider and the insurance company. So, a couple of examples um, patient fraud, um, which we actually, I think, when we think of healthcare, I'm not sure that that's where we think about it, but, you know, people will, can submit false claims for payment. They can collude with the providers to submit false claims for multiple services when services were only provided once. Um, you can also have fraud at the provider level where the provider may submit inflated billings to a government-funded insurance program or to a private insurance program. They may, may bill for services that weren't rendered. Or there's, you know, all kinds of manip manipulation of coding. Um, they do upcoding. Provider will bill for a higher or a more complex level of service that was actually provided. And then, of course, there's insurance company fraud where, you know, an insurance company can improperly bill Medicare or submit false claims or they could reject properly submitted claims without any basis to do so. So, um, yes, there's all kinds of, of the list goes on and on of healthcare fraud, sadly. And do you, as a forensic accountant, do you need to be specially trained in healthcare fraud or is that just something that, you know, you pick up or, you know, that you, you know, you can your basic uh, knowledge of fraud investigations can lead you to where you need to go in healthcare cases? Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it would be hard to, to leap into a healthcare case with absolutely no experience or working knowledge of the industry. I mean, there are internal controls and there's this whole system of coding for services provided that 
you would need to have some sort of familiarity with. Um, you know, and the forensic accountant is going to be called upon to investigate suspected fraud schemes that are being committed by, let's say, healthcare providers, and they're going to need um, some working knowledge of how that industry works. Um, you know, on the other hand, general skills will, would also be utilized and would carry them very far. You know, they're going to be investigating money flows and trends um, that are occurring in these potential networks. They're going to trace funds obtained from fraud schemes and where that money went, and then they're going to calculate damages and provide expert witness testimony. So I think some familiarity with the industry is, is probably required, um, but there are also general skills that would be used. And I mean, healthcare, as, as we've mentioned, healthcare is just one topic that you address in the book. Are there some others that we haven't talked about that you might want to highlight for our listeners? Well, I mean, there are certainly lots of other kinds of fraud. Uh, we have a couple of chapters in the book that specifically identify types of fraud, fraud that you might discover in an operating business, um, things just like, you know, asset misappropriation, you know, whether it's an insider endorsing checks and taking the cash or a bookkeeper changing the payee in a system after writing the check to herself. Um, there's customer receivable schemes. There's billing fraud. There's financial statement fraud. So <laughs> there's all kinds of different frauds that might come up. Are there other chapters or topics in the book that you'd like to mention? The book covers um, a lot of different types of areas as well that don't necessarily relate to a type of fraud, but topics that would be of interest to um, well, anyone who's interested in, in the role of a forensic accountant in a commercial fraud case. Some of my favorite chapters in the book um, relate to the role of a forensic accountant in mediation. I don't know that people, people often think about that, but a forensic accountant can be extremely useful in, in moving the ball in a mediation context. Um, there are also, there's a chapter on ethical issues that arise in the use of a forensic accountant. There's ethical issues that both the accountant and the lawyer involved in the case need to really have their eye on. There's a whole chapter on interviewing techniques um, that a forensic accountant can use, which is, you know, really useful. It's really nice to, to focus your mind on, well, how to ask that question to get the best information and, and those types of tricks. Um, there are also a couple of chapters um, geared towards the forensic accountant as an expert, one on how to write an effective report and one on how to deliver effective expert testimony written actually by a judge. Um, retired uh, Judge Stephen Rhodes about, well, as I'm sitting as a trier of fact, here's what I'm hearing and here's the best way that an expert can convey information to me. So there, there are many chapters in the book with many interesting topics. Um, so, yeah, we could go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will let people read the book because it really is a wealth of information and um, it's easy to access. If you're interested in getting the book, just visit ABI's website at abi.org. You can purchase it there uh, if you're a member with the member price. If you're a non-member, there's a, um, a different price. But uh, thank you, Kathy, for all your hard work on this book. I know you and the other authors um, put together um, a great book. So thanks for your time, and thanks for taking time today to uh, talk a little bit about the book. Um, and uh, we hope to see you write another one soon. <laughs> well, you're welcome, and I think I'm going to take a little bit of a break, but maybe. <laughs> you're allowed. <laughs> So this has been another ABI podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Amy Quackenboss. Have a great day.